0: Can you run, Stephen, or? <laughs> <walk> like <laughs> just kidding you. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen's going to pray for me. And uh, let's just commit this teaching time to the Lord. <laughs> Sorry,
1: I took the mic. No, no.
0: <laughs> you can do that anytime you want.
1: So let's uh, pray for Pastor Gordy. Abba, Father, we want to come before you and thank you so much for this day. And thank you for... Uh, being so faithful to us in in having Pastor Gordy uh, preach for so many years, and all the, I think as well, all the folks who have come, um, guests who have shared their heart, uh, you know, and your love through them. And so we just ask this morning that you would just pour out your favor and your love on Gordy uh, as he shares just what's on your mind, what's on your heart for each and every one of us this morning. So give him courage and faith to trust you this morning and in all the things that you have taught him and have put on his heart to share. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen. Stephen, one of our elders here in the church, Bob Mumford used to say, never trust a man without a limp. So Stephen's got a good limp there, praying you're getting better though, bro. So Dean, can I go to the wireless now? All right. <clears throat> so again, a, a big good morning to you. Um, as, as announced at the beginning of the sermon service today, we're going to continue our series on Exodus, changing uh, the theme a little bit. Um, Two lessons from the desert. And um, we, in the fall, went through the first part of Exodus up to the crossing of the Red Sea and uh, looked particularly at how Exodus affects our mission and vision and message as the church, how it informs us, informs that vision and mission. And um, in many ways, the desert seems kind of uh, the opposite of vision and mission because... Uh, it's 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 traditionally been a place of retreat, hasn't it? It's kind of been a place of escape. So how does that have to do with our mission? But uh, I watched three movies this this uh, holiday season, all based on the holidays. Uh, one had to do with Christmas, where I took my grandkids, Kathleen and I took the grand, the older grandkids, and then uh, one was um, on our anniversary celebration out in Harrison, and then. The third one was on the occasion of a very special birthday. And the first movie was Dunkirk. And I remember Winston Churchill's voice kind of coming over the speakers. It's not usual, you know, and you can just feel Churchill's spirit, you know, when he's, he's, he's giving his speech. You don't usually plan victory by evacuating, but that's what we're going to do. Kinda, that's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, uh, we saw the other day, highly recommend uh, The Darkest Hour, um, which is kind of more focused on Winston Churchill. Um, and then, of course, uh, The Last Jedi. I mean, I mean, when I was looking at the crossing of the Red Sea last Sunday, uh, I thought that Moses was the last Jedi, don't you think? I mean, the way he had his hand, his crook up there in the water was parting. But anyway... Uh, there, there's also this theme of, of escaping in order to, to uh, refresh and reinvigorate. And, and, and so sometimes running away is, is part of the strategy. And in our journey, often there are... How many have found out the hard way? There are sometimes these frustrating detours. And uh, even escapes uh, and delays in our lives. And sometimes bitter waters... And I want to define bitter waters as those times in our life of a special, unusual, maybe I could say it this way, a cruel and unusual disappointment. I mean, disappointment is part of life, right? We're, we kind of get used to that after living for a little while. But there's a special, cruel, and unusual disappointment. And now those are the kind where you feel God kind of led you into them. And it's where you believe he's spoken to you, you're, you're convinced he led you, and it ends up in crushed hopes and disappointment. And uh, I know for myself, I experienced this early in my life, uh, following a very, what I thought was a clear call of God to leave my little small town of, northern, of High Prairie in northern Alberta, known to millions of people around the world as, where? Where? And um, it's, it's up there in the peace country, about 3,000 people. I'd lived there most of my life. In fact, very few people have experienced this. I had the same school class, except for one, and a half, uh, one part of a year. I had the same school class from grade 1 to grade 12. Did anybody else have that? Yeah, that, that was a, it's, it's, it's a characteristic of our age. No comment there. But also, uh, I think where we lived. I think, I think small town Canada, that's... So I, I'm actually still in touch with my graduating class on, on Facebook, which is pretty cool, after we learned how to use it. And um, so, uh, kind of a cushy, you know, growing up experience in a small town but I felt I'd followed the call of God to leave my hometown and go to Bible school in L.A. There was 13 million people compared to 3,000. It's a bit of shock to your system. And it it happened because, and, and this is one of the greatest heritages my parents gave me, other than Christianity and and, and the Lord himself, was they were they kind of grew up in the classical pentecostal movement and that's my dad was a pentecostal church planter and i was followed him around on the prairies he planted two churches neither of which he was ever paid a cent for by the way he always was a tent maker taught full time was a school superintendent and to their credit because when i when i was growing up we all we were pretty rigid in our theological views the catholics were the harlot church you know, they were the beast of revelation. And uh, remember that, Wade? Yeah. yeah. And uh, we both married Catholics, isn't that? What's that about? Yeah, it's really weird. Um, and um, so, uh, but my parents, they had an, a softness and an openness to the moving of the Spirit of God. And in the, in the mid-60s, uh, there was a phenomena that happened Uh, where two books came out. One was called They Speak With Other Tongues by John Elizabeth Sherrill. Anybody ever heard that book? It was just some people, journalists, who began to research the whole issue of glossolalia and speaking in tongues. And then another book came out called The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson, who, in praying for drug addicts, found that as they they received the gift of tongues, would often experience increased freedom from their drug addiction. and, and, And there was remarkable deliverances. Well, those two books became bestsellers and they caught the attention of the church world beyond the Pentecostals and the charismatic movement occurred. And so the Holy Spirit began to move in the Catholics and in, in the Anglicans. And um, uh, my dad, as a, as a superintendent of schools, um, was also in charge of, of whole towns that were Catholic. Town, towns like Falaire and Donnelly were like these French uh, Catholic Anglican uh, commun- uh, islands in northern Alberta, and uh, the Catholics were so hungry for the Holy Spirit that they began to ask him, as a Pentecostal minister, to come and speak to them about the Holy Spirit on these Life in the Spirit weekends. And all long story short, is that's how I came to meet Kathleen, and we got married. And, uh, so, to their credit, they were very open, and so they began to take us on these pilgrimages to Melodyland. How many have ever heard of Melody Land? Melody Land Christian Center was actually a theater right next to Disneyland. I actually found some photographs today on the web. It's still there uh, of of Melody Land. I mean, the the photographs are there. The building's gone. But it was right next to Disneyland, and it it was a theater that had all the famous actors and singers that would come and sing there and act, and there was about 3,700 seating, and they had like, I don't know, 10 services on a Sunday, They bought this place, turned it into a church, and it became a center for the charismatic movement. And so we would go to these what were called charismatic clinics. They would last for a week in Southern California. My parents would take us. We'd camp all the way down, and we'd stay there and go to these. And it was just the glory of God. We had speakers, Father Francis McNutt from the Catholic Church, Dennis and Anita Bennett from St. Luke's Anglican Church in Seattle, uh, who, who, who were instrumental in seeing the charismatic movement come to the Anglican church. They wrote the beautiful book, The Holy Spirit in You. And David Wilkerson came, Mario Murillo, these guys, Brother Andrew Maltari, one of my heroes from the Indonesian revival. These people walked on water. They turned water into wine. Just commonplace in the Indonesian move of the Holy Spirit. And so it was just a remarkable place of God's presence. There were so many young people there. Uh, it was the same time as the Jesus movement, so all these hippies were coming to Christ, in the late 70s there, and mid to late 70s. And I found out they started this school of theology. And I had just kind of given my life back to God in grade 11. And I was so on fire, and I wanted to follow Jesus. And I really felt that God was leading me to... To go to this school of theology in Southern California. And so when I got out of high school, I I worked for a whole year. I saved up. And my parents offered to match me dollar for dollar. And because it was a graduate school, I couldn't couldn't get in except to take a one-year diploma program that they were also offering. And so I signed up for that. Normally kids like me would go to Vanguard College in Edmonton, Northwest Bible College at the time. But I decided to do something different. And so I, I was very, very excited about it. And the day came for uh, the trip. I got on, And my parents took me to Edmonton. I got on the, on the airplane. And I arrived in California. And all of a sudden, reality just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I realized I was all alone in a city of 13 million. I didn't know where I was going to live. And I couldn't find a, a really stable place to live for about a month. It was just terrible. I was just struck with such incredible homesickness. And and, um, and it, just be, it was just probably one of the most difficult years of my life. And to add to that, I arrived in early August. By the time I'd hit September, I had suffered, and I didn't know it at the time. And this happens to many young guys around the age of 19. I actually suffered a... Um, a a mental illness and for most of the year I had no idea what was going on in me the feeling of it was that God had just not only rejected me but he had kicked me over the edge of a cliff and I felt so tormented by rasping accusing voices that I could never do enough to, to, to make God happy and in spite of that, there were some wonderful uh, lights in that darkness. I, there were some classes I took from uh, household names that, of people that taught in the school. So, so in spite of that, there was still some blessing, but it was very, very difficult. And I, I, the pain got so great that by three-quarters of the way through, I did something that's not very characteristic of me. I cut it short. I didn't finish that year. And if those of you that know me know that I don't do that. I I finish what I start. And uh, it was probably the most painful decision in my life, in many ways. I felt like I was doing one more thing to piss God off by doing that. But I remember getting on the pain, and the crushing in my chest was so great, I thought I was going to die of a heart attack when I came home. But I cut the years short, returned broken in my mind, broken in my body, questioning whether I'd ever heard from God in the first place. And so I experienced for the first time, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, bitter waters, adventures and disappointments and crushed hopes where you feel that God has let you down. You feel like God has led you into something only to result in disappointment and it all falls apart. And that's where this text speaks to us today from Exodus chapter 15. And very early in my pilgrimage, this this text really had meaning for me. Verse 22, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So that is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. And he threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So again, remember that the Israelites have just experienced this euphoric victory. They, they've just watched, and I did in Mercy to the Children last week, I showed the part where they started to go in the Red Sea. You'll notice I did not show the part where the Egyptians were drowned. And that's because in talking to some of our kids, they get really upset about horses drowning. They don't care so much about the other guys, but the horses, they didn't want So I didn't show that part. But remember that that at that point, they thought that their enemies were gone forever, right? And so now God leads them through this desert, and I've shown you this before, but they come out of Egypt, and the direction to the Holy Land, or the Promised Land is this way, but instead they go this way. God takes them into the desert, a detour. What's that all about? Thomas Cahill in his book The Gift of the Jews describes this region like this. The wedge-shaped peninsula between Egypt and uh, Canaan and it's one of our planet's most desolate places. It would be hard to conjure up a landscape more likely to lead to death. A land bereft of all comfort. An earth of so few trees and plants that one may walk for hours without seeing a wisp of green, a place so dry that the uninitiated may die in no time, consumed by what feels like preternatural dehydration. So imagine three days, no water, hardly anything green, children, babies, elderly, people with disabilities, And we calculate, based on how far they traveled, they were going about 15 kilometers a day. And all this time, this strange cloud, remember? This strange cloud assures them that Yahweh, the one that brought them out of Egypt, is with them. At night, it turns into that pillar of fire. And just in time, yay, just as their water supply is running out, they find water. They go to drink it and spit it out and discuss what's going on here. What has God led them into? So just to put some things in perspective before we move on into this story, let's look at our journey. Our journey. Yours, mine, us as a community, and the desert. The desert tradition is etched in the mind and the psyche of, of Christian thinking. And a lot of it is influenced by this story. But it doesn't end there. Of course, in the Exodus, we find the desert is that crazy place of the confusing in between, of promise where God has promised us something and its fulfillment. It's that no, no person's land, right? It's a place of testing, of trial, of frequent failure. It's not like we pass the test. Often we fall and we see that and they went around the mountain over and over again. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury wrote, the desert was a place of renewal and purification of the covenant community. It was the place that God chose to give them the Torah. God gave them their very constitution in the desert. And the flight to the desert was seen as a return to their source. A stripping away of the corruption of the state and the culture that they'd been a part of. As I said last fall, it took them maybe 40 days to get out of Egypt and it took God 40 years to get Egypt out of them. We talked about how Pharaoh was the oppressor, but the problem is the Pharaoh in us that God has to deal with. And they find out the hard way that the real enemy wasn't the Egyptians. The real enemy was here. And that's what the desert is about, because we're confronted with that enemy. And it takes a lot harder, longer, to deal with that. As we move on through Scripture, we find that the desert comes up in the prophetic tradition. We see in the life of Elijah, for example, as he flees from Ahab and Jezebel. But in the desert, he's reinvigorated. He actually meets God near Sinai, the same place that Moses was. And he discovers or maybe rediscovers that God doesn't speak through the fire and the wind and the earthquake, but through silence. That's the literal Hebrew for that still, small voice. God speaks
2: in the silence.
0: And the silence was too much for him to handle. Like our culture, he could handle the noise and the media and the big bang and the bigger is better, but he couldn't handle the silence. And that tradition carries on with Isaiah, who prophesies the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare, make a highway, because God's coming in the desert. God's coming to you in the desert, in the wilderness. And we see that in the life of Jesus, was after he had this glorious experience at the waters of baptism, that he is led by the Spirit. And Mark even goes farther to say he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This was an urgent, important agenda for God in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And many... Theologians and the New Testament writers saw Jesus going into the desert as a recapitulation of Israel in the wilderness. It was like a, a radical renewal of the covenant with Israel that happened by Jesus taking those 40 days in the desert as a type of their 40 years in the wilderness. And that's what, as we move towards the season of Lent in a few weeks, is all about. And of course, Paul. We see this in Paul where uh, Paul spent three years in, her, in In Arabia, after his conversion, and much, much time in solitude in the desert. And then in the early church, the desert tradition continued. We need to understand that for the first 300 years of church history, Christian spirituality was embodied in the idea of martyrdom. On any given day, any one of us could be imprisoned or our property confiscated, we could lose our human rights our civil rights, or we could even be executed, thrown to the lions. And we never knew what day, any day we'd come home who would be missing at the table. That was a reality for the first few centuries of the church. And so martyrdom was the, was the epitome of spirituality. In fact, even if you lived, the word witness meant martyr. You were like a living Martyr. But something happened when Constantine the emperor made Christianity the official religion of Rome and it almost became law to be a Christian. It was like reverse persecution took over and there was this terrible confusion. It was an ingenious strategy of the enemy to confuse spirituality and to confuse what constituted true spirituality. It was the the roots, by the way, of a lot of horrible things, a lot of bad things that have happened in the name of God. It was the roots of religious wars. It was the roots of killing people in the name of God. It was the roots of persecution and torture, of the Inquisition. That all went back to Constantine. It was the roots of colonialism. It all went back to Constantine. And in the view of many, this resulted in the corruption of true and pure Christianity. So needless to say there was a spiritual revolt on the part of many sensitive people to the heart of God and to the real Christ that they knew in the Bible, and the New Testament. And so they fled to the desert again, the deserts of Arabia and Egypt, again to encounter their source and to have their Christian faith and practice purified. Because with the demise of, of the literal martyrdom, the desert became the new martyrdom. As it were, the ultimate expression of true spirituality. And one of the greatest and leaders and f- foremost influences of this tradition, and I only realized this connection this morning, so I'm a little bit tender about this, it was a guy by the name of St. Anthony the Great. And you know why I first heard about St. Anthony? Yeah, Melody Land. That place of incredible brokenness, where this was one of the lights, as I listened to the story of this guy who heard the words of Jesus If you will be perfect, come, go sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, and come and follow me. And this guy was a wealthy fellow in Egypt, an Egyptian, and he heard the call of Jesus to do this. And so he literally did, and he followed Jesus into the desert. And there were, there were about 13 years that he spent in solitude. And this is a depiction of the battles that he had with Satan by, anybody know who painted that? Michelangelo. This is St. Anthony battling the powers of darkness in some of his stories. And by the way, we know a lot about this guy, even though he only lived in, from 260 to 350 or 360, something like that. The reason we know about him is because of a guy by the name of... Athanasius, where we get our Athanasian creed. This guy was so enthralled with the life of St. Anthony that he did a biography on him, and we have a lot of good information about his life because of Athanasius. And he encountered powerful demons, powerful conflicts with darkness, where the devil, he writes how the devil afflicted him with physical infirmities, with boredom, with a feeling of just laziness and apathy. He was attacked by sexual fantasies. And for 13 years, he battled the devil in the wilderness. And it says he overcame eventually through prayer. One time the battle was so fierce as he battled these demons in a cave, they knocked him right out. And he was literally physically injured on the ground and some believers nearby had to come and get him and take him to the, to the, to, for medical help. And they brought him back to life, and he insisted on going back to that cave and dealing with them again. And God met him, and he said, why did you let that happen? He said, I'm teaching you how to fight. After 13 years, he emerged with an incredible supernatural ministry, cleansed lepers, raised dead, had powerful, powerful anointing on his life and ministry, but he stayed in the desert, and he was a humble man. And people would just began to come from all over the Roman Empire for spiritual direction. And just whole communities of spiritual direction began to rise up all over the desert with people like Antony. He was a very humble man, and he refused to impose an agenda on people's lives, but he would come and he would help them. This is where the whole tradition of spiritual direction Began and this whole uh, writings of the sayings of the desert fathers was came out of that time. Some of these classics, by the way, are still available at the Regent Library or Le- Regent Bookstore and Library. You can get them. A lot of wisdom and writings came compiled. One guy that compiled the writings was a fellow by the name of John Cassian, who took the wisdom of the desert and he moved westward towards Western Europe, towards Spain and France. And this wisdom was picked up by a man by the name of Benedict from Nursia in in Italy, who formed the first Benedictine order, and he was encouraged by a guy by the name of Pope Gregory the Great, the guy whose prayer we prayed this morning, come Holy Spirit, was the guy that was a real mentor and encouragement for Benedict in founding the Benedictine monasteries. So this desert tradition continued through history. Well, how does that affect us? Well, it's amazing because when the Protestant Reformation occurred in the 1500s, there was kind of this renewal with just re- re- revisited salvation by grace. But within 100 years, the Protestant Ref- Reformation had become dead orthodoxy. They had right thinking, but their hearts were dead. In the meantime, the Catholic the Catholic Church recognized their need for renewal and reform. And so there was the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and they drew from the desert. They drew from the, the, the writings and the spirituality and the, of the desert. And it impacted the Catholic Counter-Reformation that happened in southern France and Spain and people like St. John of the Cross and Teresa de Avila, some of these great writers So after 100 years, the Protestants realized that they needed renewal, and so you had the German Pietist movement. This was about 100 years after the Reformation. Guess where they drew their spirituality from? Yep, back from the desert. That's where their greatest influences came, and it was influenced the Wesleys, and the whole modern, the the evangelical movement came out out of that renewal. And great evangelical revivals and even charismatic and pentecostal revivals have had a lot of influence by this wisdom from the desert so in summary the desert has been critical to the mission of the people of god on this on the earth in our time there's a fellow by the name of thomas merton in the 20th century a trappist monk who among many others has written extensively on the contemporary need for for a return to the desert, a desert-oriented perspective in our spirituality, a critical contemplative perspective in order to unmask the illusions of the advanced consumer society that we live in with candor and with truth. So there you go. You got church history. Uh, When when I did my uh, spiritual theology uh, comprehensive exam at Regent College, I wrote that all out like crazy, and Jessica was right behind me, watching me do it the whole time, and lived to tell the story. (laughs) There you go, church history right there, from from a spiritual theology perspective. So the desert 101 is, if you are encountering an experience where there's no water, or the waters have become bitter, and there's been disappointment, there's good news for you. God says, welcome to the desert because you're going to meet me there you're going to meet me there and my experience at 20 years of age was my first encounter with bitter waters my first encounter with the desert i had been swimming in a beautiful stream of charismatic spirituality and life of healing and miracles but even at Melody Land I began to see that people had feet of clay there was cynicism there. It wasn't all peachy keen. It was, it, was, it was, there was brokenness and fallenness. And some of my fellow students were very cynical towards the move of the Holy Spirit and jaded. And they, they become jaded about it. It hurt me deeply. As a young believer in my faith, I encountered the desert. But I realized, I found out that it was a place, a doorway, that God was waiting there for me there even though at the time the enemy's voice was really really loud so when we face the bitter waters of merah when we in- encounter it, it the pulpit commentary says about this passage few disappointments are harder to bear than that of a person who after longing after long hours of thirst thinks that they have obtained wherewith to quench their intolerable longing and on raising the cup to their lips finds the draw so nauseous they can't swallow it. And that describes a spiritual condition of disappointment, of crushed dreams. So we have two possible responses. The first is to murmur. And it's interesting to me that this word murmur is found very... Uh, in a very limited way in the scriptures that the Hebrew for this is only found in some of those desert texts it's, it's not really found much much in any other place and so I did a bit of a word study on it and I was, I was surprised to discover that the actual meaning of it means to lodge or to stay to linger and I I. I thought, well, and and then as they write on, they say, yeah, and it was also translated murmur. And I was trying to figure out, is this just a homonym? Is this just a, you know, same word, different meaning, you know, that happens in English. Maybe it happens in Hebrew. And it is possible. I'll confess my limitations and say I've taken introduction to Hebrew and that's it. But I will say this. I find it interesting that the word for murmur has to do with a fixed position. A fixed posture. It's like choosing to stay and stay stuck somewhere. It's a a posture that the people took to choose to believe that this cloud that was leading them was not out for their good. That this cloud was out to destroy them. And they began to speak language. Oh, if we'd have just stayed in Egypt, it would have been way better than where this cloud is taking us. It was a belief that God wasn't for them. That somehow he had connived to get them out of Egypt only to kill them in the desert. And the primary expression of this posture was to attack Moses. Who do you think you are? And that happened over and over again, didn't it? So that's the first posture. And it's the spirit of our times, isn't it? I, I didn't believe that fully that it was the spirit of times, our times. Until there was this invention called Facebook. I tell you, we are a cynical, jaded, murmuring generation. The other day, uh, uh, the mayor Gregor Robertson posted on Facebook of his uh, impending stepping down from the mayor, at, and he won't run for re-election at uh, uh, in October and uh, so a lot of people were posting, so I thought I'll just post, you know. And I, because one thing that really moved me about his 10 years here, was he declared Vancouver to be a city of reconciliation. And I loved that. And I, and he didn't just talk it; he walked it. And he, he was front and center in the TRC, in the in the reconciliation walks and the rallies. He was there, and he honored and respected First Nations people. So I thanked him for that on Facebook. And I said, I, I pray that that will be a legacy that continues in our city. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Just like, I just, the, the, the bitter reaction and vitriol, I just thought, what planet are you on? Is this the same planet? You know? And no, it isn't. It is a different planet, isn't it? And what cha- planet do you choose to live on? So it's a, it's a symbol of our times. And the second response is lament. You know, you don't ignore your suffering. You don't ignore your pain. But you stop and you pay attention to it. And you pay attention to God. And you pay attention to yourself. To what's going on. And it says Moses cried out to the Lord. He didn't deny the pain or the crisis. And the Hebrew indicates that he did that in front of the people. That it wasn't... Um, some, you know where he went to his prayer closet but he literally cried out to God before the people he wore his heart on his sleeve and he said God I'm hurting but remember that that cloud was right there so I have a feeling he, he probably prayed at that cloud he, he probably yelled at the cloud eh he said hey you you in that cloud there you the one that led us out here I have something to say to you right And he just poured his heart out to God. He was real. There's something about candor and truth and being real with God, yourself and others that just is the source of connecting with the creator who lives in us. There's something about that so beautiful, that beautiful honesty of Moses. And you you see that through his life and ministry, don't you? And so... It says that God showed him a tree or a a piece of wood. So he took the piece of wood and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. It became drinkable. So the question is, what happened? Well, it shocked me and I don't want to try to watered-down miracles here. But it shocked me to find out that there were actually trees and plants in different parts of the world that are said to possess the quality of rendering bitter water sweet and drinkable. This is true in Florida, in Peru, in India. And so there's a possibility that this could have been the case in the Sinai. So the question is, was the miracle a magical log that made bitter water sweet? Or was the miracle that Moses noticed? Was the miracle that Moses saw in the middle of the bitterness, in the middle of the disappointment, that he was paying attention? And that paying attention opened the door to a miracle. Is the miracle more about us noticing and paying attention and seeing than about a bunch of bells and whistles and magic? And I think the scripture then goes on to give us a clue in this. I've I've put some highlights, so pardon my liberties in this, but let's read the last part of it again. There the Lord issued a ruling and an instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully, to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees I will not bring any of these and I've pronounced diseases diseases. eases you know what disease is it's dis-ease it's when you lose your center you lose your capacity to hear and to pay attention to the voice of God That's where disease comes from. That I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God showed him, he noticed, a tree. The answer was hidden in plain sight. So after every Merah, there is an Elam. It says that there were, that God, after they drank, drunk, God took them on to a place called Elam, and there were palm trees, and it was an oasis with streams of water. And history tells us that St. Anthony formed his communities in places like that, in the desert. That's where he was. Isn't that amazing, the, the connection through history and the stream of the desert? So St. Anthony and Macarius and others of these great uh, fathers and mothers who formed communities in the desert found these oases and formed communities that still impact our spirituality today. So I had Amara When I had my bitter experience, I came back to High Prairie, Alberta, and my dad at that time was just being invited by a Catholic church in uh, Falera, Alberta, to do a Life in the Spirit weekend. And on the very weekend I got home, he said, son, can you come with me and help me? And for the first time in my life, I was in a a Catholic church. I drank wine, real wine, for the first time. It almost knocked me right out. I was not expecting it. I was used to Welsh's grape juice. And he began to ask me to help him pray, and Catholics started speaking with tongues all over that place. And I met a young lady who was a Catholic school teacher that attended that uh, Life in the Spirit and she was so hungry and so open. I don't think I ever met anybody so hungry and open for what I wanted. So six months later we got married. Didn't take long. So you didn't know when I posted that about our 40th anniversary, that story behind there, did you? Bitter waters had become sweet for me again. God said, just open your eyes. So I did, and I saw. Yeah. So the desert, which includes intentional solitude and silence, is a critical element of our spiritual journey. In learning how to listen and pay attention to God in a world of so many competing voices, leading us out of dis into growing spiritual, emotional, and relational health. So I feel like uh, this is a bit of a New Year's message. It's not ending here. I'm going to continue to talk on this theme over the next few weeks. But I feel like as we went into the New Year, you know how you always have these goals and you're going to do this this year and all that. And and I just felt like God said, I want you this year to be a community that listens. That pays attention, that can hear. So I'm sorry, it doesn't, you know, make you jump the pews and cause a lot of hype. But I think it's what God's inviting us into. So that we can be a people who have the capacity to sustain the corruption, the 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 confusion, spiritual confusion of our times. We need to be grounded. So consider praying with someone about this today. The desert with its disappointments can take us away from our presumed enemies and help us discern, and it helps us discern and confront our true inner enemies that are keeping us from freedom, or could I say, keeping us in dis-ease. That's that's a good good discernment tip for what is an enemy to you, what puts you in dis-ease. What inner enemies might God be inviting you to confront through your desert experiences this coming year? You know, the good news is that there's there was there's am I saying this right, Jess? Arabitic, Arabic communities and Cenobitic communities. And there were two kinds of monasteries. There was the Arabitic was where you had the the hermits. That's where the word hermit comes from, is Aramitic. And and these guys would spend, like Saint Anthony, years alone. But they were still in accountability. They were still connected to communities. Otherwise, St. Anthony would have died when he had that encounter with the, in the cave. So some people are more kind of Aramidic in their spirituality, and some are more Cenobitic. The, the most common is Cenobitic desert experiences where we're just in community together. I think there are people with special callings, like an Elijah, like a John the Baptist, who are more you know, in the Arametic field, but they still are in a part of a larger communion. And I I believe we're called to be Cenobitic community. It means a communal desert community in the city. In this city. That's what we're called to do, called to be. And I believe some of the things we're doing are so prophetic. The garden outside here is so prophetic. What's happening with our kids our, our DNA for the poor. Gordy and Shannon's continuing vision and heart for that. That's prophetic in our times. Our, our culture is crying out. Our, our walk with lower posts and First Nations people. Did you know, and I, I'm going to ask some of you at, at, as we go into prayer time to come and pray for me because I've had an incredible opportunity to speak to the families of Cape Elementary School. It's a First Nations school just a few blocks away. This Thursday night, I've been invited to speak, and I can say whatever I want, but I want to just come with inculturalization and, and, and bring the gospel in their culture, in their language with their stories. And uh, this is thank, thanks to Vancouver urban ministries who are on, on the campus doing tutoring and music lessons and, and they just they said they need, a, they need a local church that they can refer to and connect with, and you guys are the only ones that We feel we can call, which is amazing. So, Stephanie's going to come with me and Kathleen, I think a few others. Love love for your presence, but it's so prophetic for our times. Reconciliation. Make sense? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you teach us this year? Would you instruct us on how to listen? Would you help us to notice those pieces of wood in the midst of our bitterness and disappointment and crushed dreams? Help us to see those pieces of wood, to throw them into the bitter waters. Your cross was that piece of wood too, of course that takes no matter what bitterness or crushed dream or disappointment we've experienced, no matter what, and can bring sweetness as we wait in the darkness, as we wait in with the cloud in your presence. Thank you for my dear brothers and sisters who've journeyed with, with me and Kathleen For many, many years, and we've seen so many beautiful people come, people like Peter and Jess and Ruby, and then they go, and it breaks our hearts, and we grieve. I thank you, Lord, for the fact that even in those disappointing bitter waters, you have pieces of wood that you want to show us to turn those waters into sweetness again. Would you do that, Lord? So may the God of hope fill you with hope so that in believing you may continue to walk in hope that those bitter waters that you've encountered would become sweet as he teaches you to notice and to pay attention. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm just going to... I ran out of time. I was going to have more interaction, but I'm going to encourage you to just turn to one another, if you'd like, and pray for each other. If you'd like to come forward for prayer, um, you can do that.
2: I just wanted to uh, release a word of... Faith. You know, when you study the scriptures, you fi- you think that you have to build your faith up. You have to dig down and find it there. But it says that we receive the gift of faith. It's the gift of faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one that gives us the faith. And it just felt like the Holy Spirit is saying, He wants to give us faith. This is something that the Lord has given me over and over again, just when we we're just going through all our trials and tribulations, whether it's been with our kids, or as Gordy said, with people coming and going. But it's not like you have to find it in yourself. And it's illustrated by the fact that when these guys were in the desert, and they're so thirsty, and there's no water, and I remember reading a footnote about Elam being 70 palm trees. It, wasn't, right it just wasn't one or two little palms. You know, trees with, <coughs> with figs on them and water everywhere. So you can imagine 70. It's, it's going to be big, not little. And So the, what, I'm, what I'm sensing is the Lord is saying, identify where the, the deepest part of your sorrow and misery and disappointment is. Because the deepest part, when the rain comes, it goes to the deepest part. The rain of God. When the rain falls, it doesn't fall on the top. High point, it goes down into the gully, right? The water goes down where it's the deepest. so that's why you don't want to build your house in the valley. That's another illustration, but so wherever you're feeling the deepest sadness, and when you cry out to God, God opens the Elam for you. Do you get that? No, you don't. <laughs> Well, you are getting it. It's progressive. It's what the Holy Spirit is teaching me not to run away and not to hide and not to be disappointed all by myself. Cry it out to God where the deepest part of your misery is, your sadness, your disappointment, your agony. Why, God, where are you? He comes there because that's the deepest place for him to go in. And that's Elam. Remember, 70 palms. Seventy palm trees, not just one. And remember, it's not your faith. You don't have to conjure it up. It's the faith of Jesus. Right now, that's happening right now. I can see that happening to, to different people. I can see it coming on you. I can literally see the faith of Jesus coming on you guys, and you're identifying the deepest sadness in your life. Why weren't you there, God? Why didn't you do that, God? Why am I still doing this, God? I can see it coming. Sally, it's on you so strong right now. It's on you. It's coming on you guys. Gloria, it's on you. It's on you. Amen.
0: Thanks, son. All right. So, uh, bless you. Don't forget to pick up your kids. Have a fantastic week.